joy to see everyone this morning, all of you, every one of you. We, we believe not only did you decide to come to worship this morning, but that you're the result of answered prayer. Uh, prayer for this church, it's, it's beginning uh, up to this very, very moment. So we're thankful to the Lord uh, for your presence here this morning. Romans chapter 11, we'll read the first 10 verses. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what, what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. And so the reading of God's word, let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you bless the reading and preaching of your word, that Christ himself, by your spirit, would speak to us, the good shepherd who calls his sheep and speaks to them. We pray in his name, amen. You may be seated. Biblical eschatology is concerned with the Bible's teaching of the end times, the last days or last things. And one of the great questions concerning this topic is Israel's place in the plan of God. Speaking of national ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel. And Romans chapter 11 will address this, as I hope to see in the next few weeks. We are in the middle of Paul's discourse concerning this topic, where is Israel in God's plan? And uh, you'll know that Israel as a whole rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah. And so he began to answer a question that naturally would be raised, and that question is in chapter 9, verse 6, where... He says, but is it not that the word of God has taken, or he says rather, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And so the apostle, knowing that he had many readers, many listeners in his audience who knew the scriptures, knew the teaching of the Old Testament, they knew passages such as this, Jeremiah 24 and verse 7 where God says, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, 
They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. In Psalm 94, in verse 14, it says this, For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. And so Paul deals with this very important question. Because the implication, I think, might be something like this. If, if his listeners were wondering, well, has God cast away Israel? Has God's word fallen to the ground and failed? Has God changed his mind? That's the issue. The question might follow from that. Well, if God has rejected Israel after making all of these promises to her, how do we know that God will not reject us who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's the issue. And so in Romans 9 through 11, these chapters in Paul's letter, he deals with this very issue as to why it is true that God's word has not failed, that God himself has not changed. We've already seen three answers to this question as we've looked at chapters 9 and 10. We see that God's promise to Israel has not changed, first of all, because the promises were not made to every citizen of national Israel. Remember in chapter 9 again, in verse 6, he says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And he points out that the promises were ultimately made to the elect. God is operating on the principle of election. And the second reason Paul mentions this and, and the way that he answers the question is that God's word has not failed because just as God promised salvation to spiritual Israel, he even foretold in the, the Old Testament that not all of national ethnic Israel would be saved. Moreover, he also promised the inclusion of the Gentile nations into the true Israel. And we've seen that in Romans 9, 25 through 29. And then a third answer to this issue and question Paul has given in our text is that God's word has not failed. Because while it is true that the salvation of the elect is according to the sovereign grace of God, it is at the same time true that God holds all men accountable who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 9 deals with, deals with God's sovereignty, the principle of election and predestination. And chapter 10 talks about uh, Israel's responsibility, that they are accountable to God because they have rejected Jesus Christ. One does not negate the truth of the other or the fact of the other. Election is true and man's responsibility is true. They both are true at the same time in God's word. And so in our passage this morning, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, we're nearing the end of Paul's discussion about national and ethnic Israel. And so in our passage for the morning, we'll see two more reasons as to why God's word has not failed. Actually, we might see four. We'll see when I'm done how many there are. Uh, but we'll see more reasons as to why this is the case, that God's word has not failed, it has not fallen to the ground, God has not changed, indeed God is faithful, God is true 
to his word. And as we think about this, I need just to um, remind you, if you know this already, that Israel's rejection, her rejection of the, the Messiah and thus, or therefore, God's rejection of Israel as a nation, as a whole, that rejection is not complete and it is not final. In other words, there were some in Israel who did turn to Christ, as we'll see. And God's rejection of the nation is temporary. It's not final forever. And we'll see that as we move through chapter 11. And so then this morning, what are those reasons? In addition to the ones we've already seen, what are the, the reasons as to why it is true that God and his word have not failed or changed. Well, in our passage, first of all, Paul gives us his own personal reason. We have Paul's personal reason. And uh, just to give clarity here, to be upfront, transparent, um, I came across these points, this, this division, this outline, in a commentary. And I couldn't come up with one better, so I'm, I'm using, it, using it. Okay, just, just so you know. Uh, but anyway, we have Paul's personal reason. That's there in verse 1. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. And Paul is very emphatic. He's emphatic, emphatic. (laughs) Certainly not. May it never be. The old translations say, God forbid. And then in the Greek, he says, for I, I myself am also an Israelite. And so he points to the nation uh, to which he belonged, Israel. That's the question. Has God cast off Israel? He says, no, I myself am an Israelite. And that was the covenant name of God's people. They were called the Jews. They were called the Hebrews, the Israelites. Well, the Israelite name, the name Israel, was God's covenant name for that nation. And so Paul is using that to show, well, God is true to his covenant, his promises. And therefore, we see that God has not broken his covenant or the promises of it. Then he says, I'm of the seed of Abraham. Now, this is interesting because externally speaking, uh, these were the seed, the physical uh, great, great, great grandchildren of Abraham. And so he was a Jew and an Israelite indeed. As we've seen in Romans 4, The true children of Israel, or Abraham, the true children of Abraham are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that. Galatians 3 teaches that. John 8 teaches that. And Romans 4 demonstrates that clearly. He also says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, if you know the Old Testament, if you go back and read it, you'll find that Benjamin was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Some have pointed out that the tribe of Benjamin was the most faithful in Israel's Old Testament history and that they remained closer to God than the other 11 tribes. And so they preserved then a larger measure of righteousness. And uh, in Philippians 3, Paul gives his credentials. You know, he says, if anyone could boast about obedience to the law, about being Um, a member of the Old Testament covenant and therefore approached God based on works righteousness, which would be heresy, by the way. But he says, even if that was the case, 
Philippians 3, he said, I the more have confidence in the flesh, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was an ethnic Jew, and he was saved dramatically, wasn't he, on the road to Damascus. He came to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we, we look at Paul's answer here to the question, has God cast away his people? The answer is certainly not. And first of all, he points out his own personal experience. He is an Israelite. He's of the nation of Israel. God had mercy on the Apostle Paul. God saved the Apostle Paul through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul then, as an ethnic national Israelite, he himself came under the care of the good shepherd promised in the Old Testament that good shepherd, David, the servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Galatians 1, Paul put it this way. You know, in Galatians, in, in his letter to the Galatians there, uh, they had heard about the apostle Paul. They had heard about Saul who was converted. And he says this, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And, he says, they glorified God in me. And so as we look at what Paul says here, I, I was these things. I was an Israelite. Of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin, when we consider the fact that the gospel came to him, that he persecuted the church, and as in Acts 9, Jesus tells him himself, you are persecuting me, Paul. If, if there's hope for the greatest, the chief of sinners, then there's hope for you and me. We ought to say praise God to that. That, you know, what were the Christians thinking about Saul? What were they praying about Saul when he was trying to arrest and round up all of these rebellious Christians. And he wanted them dead. Um, you know, Lord, look on his threats. Um, Lord, maybe you ought to take him out. And what does God do? He saves him. And so there's hope for even those who persecute the church of Jesus Christ and would persecute Christ himself. And there's hope for us this morning. And so then... The words of Psalm 94, 14 remain true. The Lord has not cast off his people, his inheritance. There's a second reason in our text as to why God's word has not failed and God has not cast away his people. And that is Paul's theological reason. We could say Paul's theological reason. That's there in verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, I've got to tell you, these three chapters are very difficult. Romans 9, 9, 10, yeah, 3, 10 and 11. They're very difficult because Paul uses one word one way, and he uses that same word another way a little later. Not all Israel is Israel. He's talking about national Israel and the true spiritual Israel, okay? So he shifts back and forth and all that. So the reason I say that is because there is a question about verse 2 and that phrase, his people. If you look back at verse 1, 
it says there has God cast away his people. So Paul is talking about his people. The question is, who are his people? Because in chapter, or in verse 2, it says his people, and he qualifies it, whom he foreknew. So you might think, okay, in, in verse 1, he's talking about national ethnic Israel. And in verse 2, his people whom he foreknew would be his elect. Why do we say that? Well, before I answer, let me just say I go back and forth concerning what Paul is speaking about here when he talks about his people in verse 2. There are those, again, who say that Paul is talking about the elect within national Israel. Okay? And that would be the view of men such as John Calvin, Charles Hodge, Robert Haldane, William Hendrickson, no, no small names in the world of commentators and biblical scholars. There are others who say that verse 2 speaks of the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, whom he foreknew, his people whom he foreknew. And uh, that view is held by men such as John Murray, James Boyce, Leon Morris, others. And uh, I go back and forth in my own mind because it's important as, as we go through the chapter. If you look down in verse um, 26, it says, And so all Israel will be saved. Well, what does Paul mean there? Well, hopefully we'll find out. Does he mean that all of the nation of Israel at one point in time will be saved? Or is he saying all of God's elect will be saved? Or is he saying both, I guess? So we'll look at that later in the weeks to come, I hope. And so which one is it? What does he talk about here in verse 2? Well, uh, the first view, as I, I've mentioned, is he is speaking about the elect within Israel. So there's the nation of Israel, even in his own day. And uh, within that nation, those physical descendants, the great-great-great-grandchildren of Abraham... There is another Israel, the spiritual and true Israel. And uh, how, do, how do we get that? Well, if you look, it says those whom he foreknew. Uh, pro gnosko, uh, to know before. It's the same word used back in chapter 8 and verse 29, which obviously talks about election and predestination. Verse 29 of chapter 8 says, for whom he foreknew. And we understand that to mean to, to know beforehand, for God to set his love on his chosen before, as we say, the foundation of the world, as we say in eternity, past. So there's that. Those are the ones he foreknew, his elect. And so maybe Paul here is saying, well, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. That would go well with Romans 9, 6 that says, not all Israel are of Israel. There's a spiritual Israel within national Israel. There's, there's like this visible church in the Old Testament and the invisible church, the elect. That would make sense. And then in our, in our chapter, in verse 5, he's going to talk about the remnant. And uh, so these, these are reasons why we might think, okay, he's talking about elect Israel, spiritual Israel, the, the remnant within the nation. But then there's this other thing, and that is he's talking possibly 
about the nation of Israel. Why would we say that? Well, if you study the word foreknow in the Bible, it can mean just simply to know before, in space and in time. And it's used that way in Acts 26, 5. Someone says, I, I foreknew him. I knew him before, ahead of time. So that's in this world, in space, in time. Um, also, when we talk about Israel and the nation of Israel, there is such a thing in the Old Testament as Israel's national or corporate election. That God chose the nation of Israel. Just consider Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It says that the Lord did not set his love on you. He's telling them as he's gathering them as the nation. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. And he goes on. talks about how he brought them out of Egypt. But he says, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, elect you. So there is this national election of Old Testament, physical, national Israel. And so to quote Keith Keith Matheson, uh, a Christian writer, he says, the corporate election of Israel, that is their national election, never meant the salvation of every biological descendant of Abraham. Again, we've seen that in Romans 9 and verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And so then when we consider where where Paul is going later in the chapter, verses 26 and following, he is talking, I think it's clear there, I, I think he is talking about national Israel. So all that's to say... It could be either or. I personally lean towards national Israel. When Paul in verse 2 says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, that he's talking about national ethnic Israel. And he foreknew them in the ages past. He called them out and set them up as a nation. He set his love on them. He chose them. And he foreknew them in that sense. But here's the point that we ought not miss. Because the question is, has God's word failed? Or has God changed his mind? The point is, God's word has not failed. The point is, look at God. Look at the faithfulness of God. I mean, if you look at verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. The answer is in the negative. No, he hasn't. And so if he's speaking of the elect within Israel, he's talking about us who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he will never cast us away. He has not. He will not. And if he's talking about national Israel, it means that he's not done with them. And I think he's going to demonstrate that's the case. Their rejection, Israel's rejection, God's rejection of Israel is not complete, nor is it final. That is to say that, yes, it is true, God is faithful. And I know some of you need to hear that this morning. You need to be reminded of this attribute of God, who God is. He is the God who is faithful. He's the God who cannot lie. Why? Because some of you, 
You have marriages that have not ended up being your dream marriage. Your home is not the perfect Christian home. Your job, your career has not gone as you had hoped. Or you're sick. Or you have some circumstance that causes you to recoil, to, to look up to God and say, God, is this really what you would have for my life? And maybe you back up further and you start to doubt and you say, well, maybe God has forgotten me. Or maybe he's cast me off. No, God is faithful. Maybe you pray like the psalmist in Psalm 38, verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. And God says in his word to you in Deuteronomy chapter 31, he says, Be strong and courageous, of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, your enemies. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe that? You need to hear it this morning. In Lamentations chapter 3, when the world is crumbling down around him, the writer says this, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. What? Great is thy faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 7, again, that Old Testament chapter, he, he says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep an oath which he swore with your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with the mighty hand. Because he made the promise, he fulfilled the promise, and he delivered you by a mighty outstretched hand from Egypt. And then he says this, Therefore, no, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 7, therefore, no, hear this, receive this, believe this, meditate upon this, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. What does it say about our Savior? In John's gospel, there he is suffering. Entering into his suffering. And John just has this little one-liner about his disciples. He says, he loved them to the end. He faithfully went through his suffering. Why? Because he loved the disciples. He was suffering not for his sins, but for theirs, for yours, for mine. And in Revelation 19 and verse 11, John says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called what? Faithful and true. The Lord Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy is near the, the end of his life. There he is in this dungeon prison. Cold and damp probably, perhaps. And he's writing Timothy. And he's, he's recounting. As to why he's there, you know, Paul, he was a preacher of the gospel. He was told not to do it. And so he found himself on trial by the Jews and the Romans. He appealed unto Caesar, so he went to Rome. Things didn't work out so well for him. He ends up in prison. Guess what happens? As history tells us, he was beheaded. But before that happens, he writes to Timothy, and he says this in 2 Timothy 4. At my first defense, 
No one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me that all the Gentiles might hear also. I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Paul says, look, I was all alone. I was defending the gospel, but I wasn't alone. The Lord stood with me. Daniel's friends went through the fire, and there was one like the Son of Man with them. So you might have enemies today. You might have a certain degree of reason as to why you might fear. God says, fear not, I'm with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the faithful God. And so Paul reminds us that here in verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And so there's a third reason that demonstrates God has not cast away his people. And that is Paul's biblical reason. These are all biblical reasons, by the way. But he's referring to Old Testament scripture. If you look there in verse 2 again, he says in the middle of it, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. Paul says, do you not know that scripture? That illustrates that God is faithful, that God has not cast away his people. Why? Well, verse 4, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So remember Elijah? He had the great victory on Mount Carmel. And he had all of Baal's prophets executed. And so then uh, Jezebel, she threatens the prophet Elijah's life and says, well, may what happened to them happen to me if I don't do that to you by tomorrow, however she put it. And so he makes haste, he runs, he flees, he hides. God feeds him, God gives him rest. And he's like, Elijah, where are you? And then Elijah gives his complaint. And then God says, is that really true? You, you alone are left? No. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so his point is, Paul's point in bringing this up is, while Elijah thought he was alone, what he didn't know is that there were 7,000 Israelites who were worshiping their God, the living and true God. They were faithful to God. And therefore, even though it would seem otherwise, God was true to his promise to Israel. At that time, in the day of Elijah. Just a quick application about that is that we need to be careful not to make Elijah's mistake. And that is to think, oh, we alone are left. There's no one else in the world who is serving the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in him. No. And we could take that a step further and, and, and we could become prideful and think, oh, we alone are left. We're the faithful ones. We have everything worked out theologically and on paper. And, and oh, no, 
God may have 7,000 elsewhere. He may have 7,000 churches elsewhere that we don't know about, which would be hard in this day and time. I get it, internet, electricity, all that. But that's the thing. A fourth reason here is Paul's contemporary reason, verses 5 and 6. Look at what he says. He's continuing that discussion about Elijah in the Old Testament. Verse 5, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And so he says, even so likewise at this present time, there is a remnant. There is that which remains, that which is left over. And that remnant is the spiritual Israel within national Israel. Paul has said that in Romans 9, 6. If you, in Romans 9, 27, it says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. In Acts 21, in verse 20, James comes to Paul. And James says to Paul, there are myriads of believing Jews. There are many, to put it mildly. And so then Paul continues and he says there in verse 6, if by grace and is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. And uh, some try to connect this to the context. I personally think that, that Paul, who, as one has said, never got over Jesus, who never got over God's grace in his life, he, he takes this opportunity. He's, he's writing that there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Our election by God is not because he looked forward through the millennia and saw that you and I would choose Jesus, so he chose us. No, it's according to his sovereign grace. We don't deserve it. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were rebels against him. And he says, I love you. Why? We don't know. I am going to save you through Jesus Christ. And Paul just continues. By the way, it's of grace. And, and if it's of grace, it's not works. These are mutually exclusive. They, they are not the same. They can't be. And so Paul reminds us that there is no mixture of grace and works in the Christian gospel. Some churches have proclaimed that either directly or implicitly. Roman Catholicism, they don't deny grace. You need the grace of God, but do these seven things. Or take communion, go to confession, do this, do that, and you will get grace. No, like Machen said, the gospel begins with the triumphant indicative of what God has done. There's this declaration, God sent His Son. He accomplished your salvation. What do you do? Please save me. You, you ask God for it. Turn from your sin. Have faith in Christ. So it's not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And so there's that reason as well. Um, Paul's contemporary reason. Why do we say contemporary reason? Because Paul says at this present time, there is a remnant, verse 5, according to the election of grace. At the time of his writing this letter, there was a remnant of Christ-believing 
loving and following ethnic Jews in Israel. Paul was one, right? And so verses 6 and following there just comment on the previous verse, verse 5. Paul, the chief of sinners, has been made in eternity the object of God's saving grace according to the election of grace. And the same is true for you who believe and me as well since I believe. And we say praise be to God. Well, Paul concludes this section here uh, in verse 7. He says, what then? What are we to say about all this? He says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Well, what did Israel seek? He's already mentioned that. Um, At the beginning of chapter 10, he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. They sought their own righteousness according to their own personal obedience to the law of God and so forth, and man-made tradition. But they haven't achieved it. No, they rejected the righteousness that comes from God through the gospel, merited by Jesus Christ, received when we put our faith in Him, the gift of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse uh, 7, they have not obtained what it seeks, that is Israel, but the elect have, what have they obtained? What they sought, the righteousness of Christ given to us by the gospel, of course, the washing away of all of our sins, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 talks about that. And he says the rest, verse 7, were blinded. The rest of whom? The national Israelites. The rest of the national Israelites. Verse 8, just as it is written. So he goes to the Old Testament, the authority of Scripture, even though he's an apostle, and points out that this was spoken of in the Old Testament. He quotes from two passages, probably Deuteronomy 19 and Isaiah 29. In Isaiah 29, it talks about God giving them, the Israelites at that time, a spirit of stupor. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. They had the spirit of stupor, a dullness, a sleepiness, no spiritual sensitivity. And and my friends, I, I think there's parallel here with America today. If you go back and read Romans 1, surely America is spiraling downward into the abyss of foolishness. Why? Because we said, God, you will not rule over us. We will not submit to your Messiah. And God says, okay, I'm going to let you do what you want to do. Have at it. Let's see what you can do. And we're a nation of fools. Because we've rejected the true and living God. The Bible says in him, in Christ, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can't have wisdom or knowledge unless you go to Jesus Christ and His Word. You can't make sense of the world in which you live unless you have the spectacles of Holy Scripture through which you see. And that vision must come as well by the aid of God's Holy Spirit. In your light, we see light, Psalm 36 says. 
And so they, at that time, had been given a spirit of stupor. And then he talks about David in the Psalms there um, in verse 9, Psalm 69. David prays about his enemies, let their table. Why, why a table? Uh, probably because a, a table shows God's provision, God's blessings, food, community, and fellowship, all of these things, safety. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. And, and so David prays this for his enemies. The problem for Israel now is that she has become an enemy of God herself. That's not politically correct. But the Bible puts it this way in Corinthians. If any man loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, what? Let him be accursed. If we don't love Jesus, we're accursed of God. Headed to hell forever. And so it's not singling out one group. We aren't to be anti-Semitic and be, quote, racial and, and all of that. And I put quotes around racial because we're all one race, the human race, and there's different ethnicities, and no one ethnicity is better than the other, okay? We're all made in God's image. We all are sinners and in need of Jesus Christ. He says, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Charles Hodge said, the strokes of God's justice blind, bewilder, and harden the soul. That ought to give us great pause to see where we are before Almighty God on this day. And so then as God cast away His people, Paul says, may it never be, certainly not. God is faithful. God is dependable. And His word is believable and should be believed. Look at Paul himself, a converted Israelite to Jesus Christ. Look at God himself and his track record, his faithfulness to execute and perform and fulfill his holy word. And look then at what he's doing in the world. There are Christians today who are those who have come to Jesus Christ and are of national ethnic Israel. God has not cast away his people completely or finally. And to that we say amen. Let's pray.